So I'm not going to lie, sitting here in the studio, a brand new studio by myself, staring at a microphone and a pair of headsets that is uh, unoccupied, kind of hurts my feelings a little bit. But once again, Steve could not join us today. He's busy doing other things. So you are stuck with me, BK, for another episode of the Silver Savage podcast. And I actually came back from a couple of training evolutions with a few different uh, organizations. And there was one question that seems to be a thread or I guess the theme that was going through uh, in this various uh, training. And um, I thought it was uh, worth discussing it with with everybody else. And uh, as a matter of fact, I would love to get your uh, feedback and input. So after this episode, if you guys can go and... uh, Leave comments um, on our Instagram page or uh, the YouTube page or just uh, direct message me on my personal page. It doesn't matter. The idea is that uh, I would love to hear what you guys are thinking and if you have any follow-up questions that we can uh, keep uh, exploring and and discussing as we move forward. This is a topic that is close to everybody's hearts right now. We're talking about a, a violent world that we live in. And a lot of organizations and institutions are taking steps to harden themselves as a target, which I believe is a phenomenal step. People are finally, unfortunately, uh, due to experience, are starting to think proactively rather than reactively, right? And uh, something that we've been preaching for a long while in our training and teaching, I always said I, I hate teaching active shooter response. I much prefer, to, prefer teaching you active shooter prevention, Right. Uh, why wait till somebody gets shot before we decide how to address and handle it uh, when I can just not let the fucker in to begin with, right? So uh, so a lot of organizations following the uh, various events that were going on, and they've been going on for a while, right? This is death by a thousand cuts in a sense. But uh, following uh, most recent events, uh, a lot of organizations are reaching out. And uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of a wave, right? It always happens after big events, uh, coincidentally enough, when we would offer a training on a regular basis, uh, people are, I want to say, reluctant, um, or at the very least, they think they don't need it, they kind of ding in the head and send type thing. But when something bad happens, all of a sudden, we get all these phone calls and our requests for training. Um, and I'm not belittling it or passing criticism, better late than never, in a sense. And if these organizations need a training, we'll be there to provide it. So, um, so recently we were approached by, uh, by two religious organizations, one on the Christian side, one on the Jewish side, and, uh, and a private organization, all with questions about how to uh, develop an on-response option to the event of an active uh, shooter specifically. Right. And, uh, and again, just to be clear, uh, when, I, when I teach, I don't refer to those uh, events as active shooter necessarily. I refer to him as an active assailant uh, because I don't need to be shooting at somebody in order to cause much uh, mass damage or mass casualties, right? I can run into the uh, into the, the sidewalk right next to one of these organizations with my car and, uh, and kill a bunch of people. I can use blades. I can use hammers. I can use other tools. I can buy at Home Depot. So kind of narrowing our thought to it has to be a shooter um, certainly prevents us from seeing the bigger picture, which I think is a flaw. But that aside, the question came up uh, by this organization, organization specifically about harming, sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that right, arming, as in 
putting arms in the hands of uh, of congregants and volunteers uh, to address this uh, this type of event. So let me begin by stating that I'm obviously a pro Second Amendment individual, and I believe people should have the right to uh, bear arms. Um, I think we have the right to self-defense, and I think uh, knowing historically what the Second Amendment was written for and to protect us from tyranny, uh, being Jewish myself and learning the history of the Jewish people during uh, World War II or prior to World War II in uh, Nazi Germany being disarmed and then put in ghettos and concentration camps and ultimately in uh, death camps. Uh, certainly resonates with me in the sense that if I want to protect myself and loved ones, I should not give up a tool that would give me the option to do so. Um, and again, I cannot stress enough, I don't need a gun in order to harm a lot of people by uh, preventing me from owning a gun. I don't know that I'm necessarily solving the issue. An evil mind is an evil mind, and those evil people will figure out ways of either obtaining illegal firearms or using other tools for the same uh, purpose. So typically in other nations where we see more restrictive gun laws, we see an increase in other tools being used for crimes. So um, again, not, not to get into the political debate about whether or not uh, gun laws are necessary or unnecessary or to what extent they're necessary, um, just wanted to throw that out there because what I'm about to say sometimes irritates some people that come from our world because although I'm a pro-Second Amendment individual and I believe everybody should have the right, I also am a big proponent of training and education. I believe that owning a tool, any tool for that matter, we don't issue, uh, we don't allow people to drive cars without a driver's license, without taking the proper training prior to. Uh, we don't let people operate certain machinery without a proper training and licensing to do so. We don't let people dispense uh, medications without the training and licensing to do so. Um, so if I have a tool that is designed by nature to cause harm, and even though for defensive purposes, um, I am a believer that certain level of training is, uh, is probably required. And I'm saying all of that because as we kind of start discussing the whole idea of protecting congregations, protecting communities, training becomes paramount. And, and this is a discussion that I've had with these individuals. So individuals approach me and said, I go to a church or I go to a synagogue, or in one case, I go to a hospital or work at a hospital. I'm concerned about events of active shooter and I want to carry my firearm at that place of worship or my workplace. So putting aside for a second rules and laws in terms of carrying in certain, uh, certain uh, locations, right? So for example, a lot of hospitals being privatized at the most part, uh, typically speaking, uh, do not allow uh, farms in there. Uh, and they have some reasoning behind it. Um, again, whether I agree or disagree is a different topic, but, uh, but it is posted and it's not allowed. So for a clinician that works at such facility to come and tell me I want to carry um, at a place that strictly prohibited, prohibits it legally, um, I can't go and tell them, well, you should uh, ignore the law or the rules that they pose and carry anyways, just in case something happens, right? Because um, although I think that's a logical thing to do, uh, that would be irresponsible of me to recommend such actions. I will probably be setting up that person for failure because it's most likely to get caught with uh, 
a prohibitive tool and either lose his job or worse, face criminal charges. Um, and I don't care that he meant to do the right thing and had the right uh, mindset and the right heart. Um, at the end of the day, um, for me to tell him that that is the right thing to do would be wrong. So I'm going to put laws and regulations aside for a second. We'll talk more about the tactical or strategic um, element of this uh, approach. And I'm going to pick on congregations for a second and being more familiar with synagogues and churches, although I believe that they won't be very different in a sense. Um, I think uh, I think this will make sense. So my fear is having a right person um, trying to do the right thing for the right reasons and yet um, causing more damage than good in the process. Right. And as I'm talking to you, I'm actually noticing that I am getting emails, so I'm going to put my phone on to not disturb, and hopefully that solves the issue. Um, anyways, um, I'm afraid of them doing more harm than good. And what I mean by that is most civilians, um, and again, um, they may be legally licensed to carry a farm. They may even have the permission of the leadership of the congregation being a rabbi or a priest or a board of directors, whatever it is that calls the shots in that organization, right? Um, they may even have their blessing, uh, no pun intended, uh, to do so, to carry a gun there. But that individual's training probably consists of maybe, in Maryland, a 16-hour class, um, which is mostly theory with a little bit of drills and a course of fires that requires them to fire 25 rounds and score 70%, uh, which means that if I hit all my rounds up to seven yards, I can miss all the ones past it and still pass the test, right? Um, and let's say that individual even went to the range on their own because they are proactive and they understand the responsibility and they shoot at a target, which is stash, static, stationary. Um, you know, they're trying to get a tight little grouping. They work on the fundamentals. That individual, when she hits a fan, I, excuse my French, right? When she hits a fan, tensions are high, adrenaline is dumping. They are suffering from all of the physiological responses to stress, being auditory exclusion, tunnel vision, hyperventilation, right? The endocrine flush, which means adrenaline endorphins dumping into your bloodstream. They lack fine motor skills. And most importantly, the cognitive functions drop, right? So people cannot make proper decisions under stress, short of being trained for that specific event and that level of stress, right? So if I think about a doctor or surgeon that does very complex surgeries, right? They're trained to overcome the stress that comes with the procedure they're doing. But, uh, and, and to that extent, so there are war fighters out there, right, that are trained to overcome the stress that comes with a gunfight and, and react appropriately. But the majority of the population does not. So that individual will be sitting on his seat during service and bad guy comes in with a gun, shots are fired, and this guy's going to try to take a shot under all of those stressful, you know, again, physiological manifestation um, that's, that's going to happen and likely will not hit the target, more likely hit the people he's trying to protect, um, cause more damage than good and... Um, 
put himself in a bad position, not to mention the, the families that he now ruined. So, um, so that is one side of the equation. The second side of the equation, so when, when, when I talk, spoke to this group, right? So the, this question came out and they were like, well, you need to, oh, or we need to arm uh, individuals. And the one side said, no, we can't because they're gonna do the wrong thing. The other side said, well, people are caring anyways. So we need to um, somehow manage it to work it to work, work, make it work to our advantage rather than uh, be a hindrance. And this is again where what I started with this podcast comes into light, which is training. If a congregation is to allow an armed option, whoever is selected to be part of that armed option and not everybody should be selected, and not everybody should be allowed to carry. And most synagogues and churches that I know of, and I assume it's the same for other religions and sects, um, are, are privatized. They can call their own rules, right? And even though I may say you shouldn't be carrying unless permitted by the, again, rabbi, priest, board, caddy, you know, whatever, um, we can stop people from caring. I mean, if somebody wants to have it under, under their suit jacket, we're not patting everybody down and making them work through a metal detector, which is all different conversation we can have. But um, but to some extent, that will, um, you know, assuming only people caring in the organization are those approved. So they have to go for a selection process. Those people have to meet a certain standard, a certain bar, a physically... Uh, Secondly, tactically and thirdly, maturity uh, or psychologically, right? Um, just because you can hit a target doesn't make you the right person to respond to an event. And just because you have the right mindset doesn't make you the right person to respond to an event, right? We need all of those elements combined. And then once selected, they should go through specific training that teaches them to navigate crowds, close distance to a threat, engage under extreme stress, so doing a lot of stress inoculation type drills, um, talking about identification and how to not induce a blue-on-blue -blue response where responding uh, law enforcement may engage them. At the end of the day, it's a risk they're taking, right? But the reality is there's ways to mitigate some of it. Um, so that should be part of the training. And, uh, and there should be ongoing... Uh, requalification and testing to remain on said team, right? Um, so that is my, my short answer to them. Um, I believe everybody should have the right to carry. I do not believe everybody should be part of a response team or an organized response team to, uh, to a mass shooting incident, to a big event. Um, I will throw one more element, though, that I think is worth considering, and that is the whole element of deterrence. So armed security, whether they're trained or untrained, is certainly an added deterrent for the organization. So every ill-intended individual, uh, whether being a terrorist, an active shooter, any street-level crime, right, it's going to go through a five-step process as they are going from planning to execution of the event. And as part of their cycle, they're going to do some intelligence gathering. A lot of that is going to done through um, 
open source intelligence gathering opportunities, right? So Google, Google Maps, um, you know, uh, things that are available in the media. I can go on any congregation's website because at the end of the day, there are businesses and they're posting information out there, right? So I can go and find hours of services. I can find uh, when are they having social events with where the gathering is going to be significantly larger, right? Like weddings, funerals, um, bar mitzvahs, uh, whatever it is, right? Holidays. Um, so I can find all that information. So the bad guy will, will find all of that, and then they're probably going to do some dry runs where they're going to try to uh, to see the viability viability analysis of their uh, plan. Um, can they execute it? Now, I will say that short of that individual having a personal vendetta against somebody within a specific organization, they are not locked into a specific target. They're locked into a type of target. So if I want to kill Jews, I can go to one of several congregations and synagogues, right? If I want to uh, to kill Christians, um, there's a bunch of churches I can go to. So what that individual is going to do is going to probably drive around and try to pick up the target that makes the most sense. And at the end of the day, looking for the path of least resistance, which will increase their success uh, chances, right? So for a congregation to have an armed guard standing in front certainly adds to the deterrence level. And that armed guard may actually be not as well-trained as we would like and still reach that effect by pure visibility. Uh, that person also has to take under account that they are posing themselves as potential targets because if I was a bad guy that intends to hit a specific location and I see an armed guard and I still want to hit that location, that armed guard is the first target because he's the one that represents the highest risk to the, uh, to the bad guy, right? So that guard needs to be aware of that. Now, this is where a lot of organizations kind of, in my mind, miss the point. Um, if they carry, they want to carry concealed, which, again, I understand. Some of it has to do with perception. Um, some of it has to do with professionalism. But at the end of the day, carrying concealed, as the name suggests, minimizes or lowers at least the deterrence element as the ill-intended individual is not aware of the presence of firearms and therefore does not account for the chance of meeting some lethal response to his actions, uh, even when that happens. So this is my belief. Using an element from uh, that we utilize a lot in dignity protection certainly applies to all security, uh, processes, which is what's called concentric rings, rings of security, which means as we get closer and closer to the asset, security gets tighter and tighter. So I would have an armed open carry guard on the outside. Um, that is the first layer. That's the deterrence. That person may be overcome, uh, but more likely than not, they would prevent events from happening before they even happen. And not to compare apples and oranges, Israel has armed guards at the entry to every school, most malls, restaurants, and so forth. And terrorism aside, because terrorists don't care, and they're, for the most part, they're suicidal anyways, um, 
we don't get events like active shooters like in America because nobody wants to go into a place that has an armed guard ready to confront them at the entrance. Again, not trying to compare apples and oranges in the U.S. and Israel are very different culturally, uh, legality, and so forth, but certainly bear noticing. Uh, and you, you take out of it whatever you want to take out of it. Um, but I think that would be the first layer. Actually, that would not be the first layer. It would be probably the second layer since we'll probably have undercover people and people doing uh, basic behavioral analysis and surveillance and counter surveillance on a even outer ring where they're trying to um, catch patterns um, by people. So catch events of potential surveillance, uh, people that don't act normal, that don't belong and so forth. So that would be the most outer ring, right? But then the on guard is going to be one of those rings that are slightly further in. And then as we get closer and closer, where the asset trying to protect at this point is the congregants, its peoples, its lives, um, the security gets tighter. So some sort of access control by greeters uh, that are a little more scrutinizing in the sense of who they allow in and who they don't. Obviously, we have um, actual physical barriers like doors and uh, maybe even access control mechanism. Members have uh, fobs or some sort of um, an idea that would grant them access into the building. Uh, but then the last ring would be that armed component internally. Those people may be carrying concealed as they do want that element of surprise, the tactical advantage in case something happens. They are better trained. Uh, they're better equipped. Um, so that would be kind of like the last resort, right? They're not the first response. They're the last resort. And they have to keep that in mind also. Um, we got to know our place. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, the discussion I've had. Now, my question to you, uh, I'm sure some of our listeners uh, either go to such congregations or own businesses or run businesses or work at businesses that may or may not have armed security. And I'm kind of curious, first of all, about whether or not you believe that armed security is good or bad. Because a lot of it is perception, right? And in Israel, armed security is seemed as a good thing, as, okay, that place is safer because we have armed security. In the United States, the mentality is still such that, oh, if they have armed security, that place must be unsafe, right? Uh, so again, we're being reactive in nature rather than proactive. So I'm curious, first of all, about your perception regarding armed uh, security. Uh, be If your facility has armed security or employ them, what do you feel of their level of training? and competency to do the job if something happens. Last but not least, I will leave you with this. When people ask me, what is the one thing that will give me the highest return on investment in terms of training for an event of mass casualty? And without a doubt, my response is always learn trauma care. You may not like guns. You may like guns and not feel very proficient with them. You may not have the opportunity to engage correctly, but without a doubt, everybody can save a life by knowing how to apply a tourniquet, apply a chest seal, right? Pack a wound. So as a very basic and probably the most important thing that I would always recommend an organization to do is if you haven't already, get a stop the bleed class going on ideally get a trauma care class going on, right? So that would be a level above the stop the bleed, right? Learn CPR, make sure you have 
uh, trauma kits. Everybody has AEDs right now, but very few facilities have trauma kits. And honestly, I'm more likely to have someone get injured in a car accident, falling and slipping, or an active shooter than have a heart attack. Uh, so defibrillators are important. Don't get me wrong. In case of a heart attack, defibrillators is what's going to save you, not the CPR. But get trauma kits as well. Have those are located ideally where the AED is because everybody knows where those are, right? Learn how to use the equipment that's in there and uh, and practice that just like anything else. You got to practice and you got to maintain your, uh, I'm going to call it qualifications for lack of a better term, but your ability to execute those skills under stress. So long discussion on what I think is important. Um, Again, there is no one answer fits all. Uh, if you are considering an armed response, I highly suggest you contact someone that is an expert in the field. <clears throat> hint, hint. Uh, but get someone to come and do an assessment on your facility, uh, guide you through what the best approach is, what are the different layers and security uh, protocols you can put in place to minimize the risk and enhance survivability. Uh, and again, Start thinking deterrence. Stop thinking necessarily just response. I hope you find this beneficial. I hope everybody out there stay safe. I hope Steve is going to be here with me next time. And until then, just have a fabulous week, everybody. Take care.